Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode continues our series talking about games and education. This conversation was so inspiring for me personally. I talk all the time about how games can impact people, and often it is in the abstract. But the stories that my guests tell today really drive home how revolutionary the games can be in reversing how people can see a situation. In this case, how kids who see school as a hindrance or a hostile environment can come to see it as a way to express themselves and a place where they can belong. Today on the line, I am talking with the co-founders of Teaching with D&D, which is wonderfully self-explanatory. Even if you aren't big into Dungeons & Dragons, you'll find a lot of valuable lessons here. My guests, Sarah Roman and Cade Wells, have been pioneering ways to take the key aspects of not just D&D, but gaming tropes and theory to change their classroom atmosphere and to simultaneously address specific academic benchmarks. How do they do that? Well, let's find out in the interview. All right, with me today, I am very excited to be talking with Sarah Roman and Cade Wells. They are the co-founders of Teaching with D&D. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Cade. Hi. Hi. <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, it's great to have you. First, can you talk about your backgrounds in education and teaching? I understand it that both of you have been teachers. Go ahead, Sarah. Sure. So I had been a teacher for six years at Raritan High School uh, out in Hazlitt, New Jersey. I was teaching English, so I was primarily teaching junior honors, British literature, and AP literature um, with a smattering of world lit and ELL. You know, over that time, it was absolutely wonderful. I've thoroughly, you know, enjoyed my time teaching, and I have recently moved into a content manager position for a financial tech company out in Lambertville, New Jersey. So that's what I'm up to right now. <laughs> my turn. Yep. <laughs> I came into education later in life. I had done pretty much every job there was and decided that I wanted to uh, make up for every bad thing I've ever done and try to leave the world a better place than I found it. Uh, so I moved from uh, Minnesota, respectively, to Houston, Texas, to work in the Aldine District, uh, where I've been for the last seven years. Uh, I teach at a school called Davis Ninth Grade, and uh, in in my district, they separate the ninth grade campuses from 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, and I've been there since the building opened six years ago. I also teach English. I'm the department chair of English for my ninth grade. There's never a day that's not without joy and struggle. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Sarah, and Sarah and I have been working on this for the last, I don't know, Sarah, what, three years probably? I would say at this point, just about three years, yeah. And uh, I started my initial contact with Wizards of the Coast um, years ago when I went to the European Literacy Conference in Klagenfurt, Austria, to present what I found on the kids that I had that were just in a D&D club and the gaming strategies that I that I use in my classroom. But my educational background is, is although it seems brief, seven years for a teacher is an awful long time these days. Hmm. So was that your first encounter, Cade, with the idea of using role-playing games in a classroom setting? Your your school had a D&D &D club? No, I started everything. Anything that, that began <laughs> was me. Um, when, I was, when I went to back to school to get my pedagogy degree for English, all of the things that I was supposed to be learning seemed really familiar in a lot of ways. And I was building a campaign for my buddies at the time. We are playing a little gentle D&D because &D I was very busy. Uh, but I was trying to figure out why this all sounded so familiar. And I opened up my DMG one day and I was like, Oh, the reason I know all this is because I've been playing D and D since I was 10 years old. So literally all the pedagogical training that they want you to go through in college to be a successful teacher. Uh, anybody who's been a dungeon master or a player for any length of time understands exactly what it takes to make an engaging environment. <laughs> and so uh, I thought, well, this doesn't exist yet, and I've always been that kind of motivated person. So I started inventing 
a, a system for a classroom integration of all kinds of things related to uh, role playing is the long story made really short. So that was my first encounter with with uh, putting games into the classroom was when I was in college. I realized that the, the framework of learning was the same. Mm-hmm. And pedagogy, can you explain what that is? Uh, pedagogy is the is the art of learning, the, the study of learning, hmm. teaching and learning. Interesting. The study of teaching and learning, pedagogy or pedagogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you feel like you learned that through playing D&D or DMing for D&D? Or a little it, bit both. It was both. I mean, like, I'm a lifelong player. So, I mean, this game I picked up when I was 10 uh, through some weird circumstances, like it always is. And it was just when I was in, in college to get my degree as an English teacher, because I already had a previous degree. I, I was getting this this degree in teaching. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, it was all so familiar. All the classroom strategies, all the management strategies, everything was was so familiar um, that that's when I bridged the context. That's when I said, oh, this is all from like everything that you do in D&D, you, ask, you also do in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I made the connection. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, how about you? When was the first time that you broached the idea of using role playing games in, in a classroom? Um, I would say it was a lot later than Cade. I had been running a classroom. I mean, now this phrase has popped up that I wish had been around a little more when I was first starting my teaching career, but this whole guise of experimental learning. Hmm. I had been very heavily invested in microelectronics and microcontrollers in the classroom as a way to teach literature, really attempting to do some kind of innovative cross-curricular projects and things like that. I mean, I think what I found was while I loved blending technology and literature, there are these, and what kind of Kate is talking about, these pedagogical gaps that occur. And while the students are heavily engaged, um, I felt like I was always at, like, the tip of the iceberg, you know, so to speak. I had started kind of playing around with class craft. I'm sure you probably hear that from a a handful of educators as well. And I just said, like, this is absolutely just a watered-down version of um, you know, a game system that's meant to modify behavior. It's not meant hmm. to immerse them. It's not meant to role play. It's there to kind of put, uh, and I'm not trying to go heavily on classcraft right now. I'm just saying <laughs> that's what it had initially felt like to me. So I kind of said, you know what? The classroom already feels like such a great place to experiment. Why don't I start looking around for ways to really integrate role playing? And I said, you know, I had been more of a Magic the Gathering, I will spend, you know, 18 hours on WoW kind of thing back in my day. You know, I had seen Dungeons and Dragons and I knew it existed and I thought about it and I said, this would be actually a, a pretty neat implementation that I don't see a lot of people doing, which is how actually Kate and I had ended up getting into contact with one another. Um, you know, one of those grapevine stories where a friend of a friend says, hey, you know, I see you're doing this, and why don't you get in contact with uh, Greg Tito from uh, Wizards of the Coast? Because he has, um, you know, an educator who's also trying to do the same thing out in Texas. Hmm. And that was when, of course, our fate was written in the stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, because Kate was telling me that you two haven't met in person, but you are working on this uh, pretty bold experiment together. Yeah, it's been awesome. yeah. I hopefully in July we will get to meet. Yep, we'll um, meet in July for the first time at the Serious Play Conference in Montreal. Yes. Which is a big deal. Yeah, yes, that's I'm awesome. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah, and that's really cool. That's such a testament to the power of games and why I love talking about games is there's so many people out there doing amazing, cool things and you don't even know about it until, you know, someone does a signal boost and the, the connections are made. It was strange to uh, be working with a stranger that I ultimately ended up trusting so much. Um, <laughs> that's been a really, really neat part of the of the process is Sarah and I have gotten to know each other kind of like, you know, at war when you write letters or something to somebody <laughs> on the front. Yeah. That's kind of what yeah. it reminded me of. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through a lot together from 1,100 miles away. So yeah. uh, that, that's been really, really cool and, noth- and nothing but positive. It's been a lot of work, but it's it's always been great. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, you kind of mentioned that in college you had your first attempt at bringing D&D into in a learning environment. Can you talk about that? Okay, so those are actually separate stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I 
What I realized was that Dungeons and Dragons by itself was a too complicated tool originally to be run in a classroom of 30 children. Okay, does that make sense? I've been I've been in a D&D group with like 12 people and I totally understand. Yep, okay, so now imagine you've got 30 kids and you're supposed to deliver test-ready curriculum to them so that they can graduate because they take one of their first most important tests uh, in Texas in the ninth grade in English. So my job, as far as anyone is concerned, is to get these children to pass this test, okay? Mm-hmm. So putting Dungeons and Dragons in the classroom, let me just table that for a minute. What I started doing in college was I, dis- I dissected games because I grew up playing D&D. That's what I dissected. And when they came out with fourth edition, they had a role system that, and I'm not even going to remember them anymore because I changed them, but uh, I created a role system in my classroom, and then the kids create characters that helped me manage the class with a classroom economy and some of the tools that Classcraft uses. So I created my, turned my room into a adventuring party. Okay. So like the kids themselves make avatars. Those avatars have a job based upon their role. The role is initiator, protector, diplomat, and sage, which match the fourth edition uh, rollout, match the fourth edition rollout almost exactly. So in classroom, the way that looks is the protector keeps the peace. I have my kids in four groups of eight. They're in four oval-shaped groups. So their their roles overlap, which help a classroom, especially in the beginning stages of a year when you don't know them and they don't know you. The protector keeps the peace. Their job is to say, chill out, chill out. You guys are too loud. You know, guys, chill out. Mr. Wells is going to get mad. Uh, that's pretty much the protector's job is to settle disputes and keep their groups cool. The initiator's job is to get up, to get anything. Okay, they're that kid with ADD or too much energy, uh, the child you probably know on the first day of school. So the initiator role is designed to help them, you know, utilize that energy. The diplomat's job is to make sure that everybody kind of does their job. If the protector isn't keeping the group quiet, then it's the job of the diplomat to keep the group quiet. You know, no leader wants another job to fall upon them. So it's usually pretty, you know, it's usually pretty effective. And then the sage's job is to help me keep the records. They help me take attendance. They help put stuff away uh, neatly and in an organized fashion. And they take a personality test on like I think I do it on the second day of school uh, where it fits them into one of these categories. And then from those categories, I draw randomly what their initial group is going to be at the very beginning of the year. And I use the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to explain to the to the children what those roles mean using uh, images from pop culture that at least if you don't, uh, you know, know them and watch the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all the kids know mm-hmm. about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So for for comparison, Michelangelo is the initiator. Uh, Donatello is the sage. Raphael is the protector. And Leonardo is the diplomat. And all the kids understand that right away. And so that's how I originally decided to bring games into my classroom. So then what do these jobs do? Well, these jobs, the kids get paid or they don't get paid. So that that pay goes into a spreadsheet every day when they do their job and they use that pay on their grade at the end of a three week grading period. They're able to spend what they've earned on their actual grade. So all of a sudden their behavior is in direct correlation to what they're taking home on a progress report. That's the first that's the first way I put uh, I, I use D&D, so that's the first way I put D&D into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Then I started running a club, and I saw a lot of things grow. Remind me about that when you come back from Sarah. Sarah, go ahead. So I think my first big use, a lot of reference has been kind of given back to this moment, is when I used it with Beowulf. Kate does absolutely wonderful, I feel like, use of D&D methodology, and I think my strong suit for the classroom was using D&D as a way to immerse students in the text. Mm-hmm. So I would say, and I think, Kate, you would agree, that's probably our largest differentiator in how we implemented it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So in this vein, um, I had decided to kind of introduce D&D to both my honors, Brit Lit and uh, AP Lit. They both weren't doing Beowulf, but the, the same kind of intro lesson stood was where I used it to hit upon their research skills you know, creating a character, having to pull together resources to understand what you're doing, using as a teachable moment to understand, right, again, index glossary, really hitting upon those, you know, nonfiction informational skills and tying it very closely to the curriculum in that way. You know, and once we established that foundation, it became a whole game of, really, have you read the book? And if you have, how are we going to play this game? So it was super neat. I had them 
jump into, uh, I was calling it the lair of the sea witch. So they had to fight Grendel's mother, but they had to make choices. And I want to say appropriate to the text, but that wasn't quite how it went. Like, of course, they had to defeat Grendel's mother using the great runic sword, right? That's in Beowulf. Mm -hmm. However, they could kind of go about this any which way they wanted. So they traversed the map. Um, you know, they were battling monsters who were basically subbed in for the descendants of Cain. All of the environment was very closely tied to the literature. So what it enabled them to do was really envision what was happening. Not only did they read about Beowulf and Wiglaf and, and Grendel, they then got to talk to them and hear what they sounded like. I mean, of course, through me, but... You know, it was a whole different level of interaction with the text that, of course, they don't usually get. And sometimes they could really, and much to their, you know, happiness, screw up the story, right? Because <laughs> I would have to adapt to their choices. And I think that was another thing. Like, Kate and I talk about this a lot, but parts of this role-playing and showing yourself to the students and having the students really take on this kind of different persona to interact with the text, it's so humanizing. I feel like it brings us all very close together in a different way, you know, because you always kind of have students at an arm's length, right? You always mm -hmm. have that authority figure. You kind of have this very set and rote way of acting, but to still have limitations and to still have guardrails and be able to show, oh, you actually have a sense of humor and yes, you can make that wacky group decision and we're going to see what happens. And you know what? the roll of the dice are going to tell us what's going on. And it kind of removes that element of like us always dictating, which I really liked. Hmm. So it was nice. I, th I think it really created a really nice ebb and flow. And throughout our different adventures through different texts, for me, the retention rate skyrocketed in their writing projects, in long form essays, in anything that had to kind of do with critical text and close reading, I'm sorry, critical text analysis and close reading. They remembered that something had happened there, and that was the most important part. It wasn't just words on a page anymore, and that was really what I had felt was so valuable about it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it definitely jumped out to me what you said, like the ability to change the the relationship between the teacher and the student. You know, just imagining my teachers, English teachers, were some of them were really good, but, you know, it was pretty much, okay, go home, read this, okay, now I'll... I'll do a little bit of asking some questions about it, and then that's how it's taught. But, you know, I can't imagine any of my teachers trying to get into a voice or a character and then interacting with me in that world. That That's like a totally different dynamic of understanding, understanding the literature, but also understanding, like, okay, this is a teacher, this is another human being, we're both improvising, we're both trying to figure this thing out together. That's really, really amazing. The relationship that I built in my classroom using the role system turns me into a dungeon master in class. So, like, I, I approach my students not like a teacher to a student, but to like a dungeon master to a player. And if you, you know, it's a similar relationship, but the way that, uh, that I speak to them is very different than the way that other teachers speak to them. So what you're saying, what you're saying is very true about like the power of that, of disintegrating that bridge. And I'm telling you, if teachers could just adopt the gaming theory into their heart and treat their kids like players instead of kids, uh, they'd see a lot greater success. Uh, Sarah and I teach at very, very different schools. My kids are title one, high risk, high poverty, every problem there is, you know, you, you name it, they've been through it. Um, very different, uh, populations of educational level. You know, you got a kid in the class that, you know, is scoring, you know, high eighties on standardized tests. And you got kids in the same class scoring 23s and, uh, you know, you have to teach them all. So what she's saying about the relationship building and how the games end up breaking that down there's a bigger metacognitive process to all that, where if, if teachers could adopt what gaming theory really is, it's like your room isn't just a classroom. Your room is whatever environment you make it into. And uh -huh. I've seen teachers, plenty of teachers, turn their classroom environment into a very negative, bad environment. I've seen teachers do nothing, and then the kids run that environment. My game environment in my room is is as good as a classroom in in my district, I feel, could possibly be. Problems are managed in class. I 
have the lowest write-up rate of almost any teacher I know in a district where it is very hard to negotiate with some of the problems that these children have. And so I'd love to tell you that I sit around and play D&D with them all day, and that's ultimately completely untrue. Um, but the philosophy of, of gaming and what it can bring into your classroom holistically as an idea has great, great power that could really change the way that, that kids approach school and the way that teachers feel about their kids. Mm-hmm. And I still haven't told you how I put D&D in the classroom yet. <laughs> I still have my pinky up. That's how I remember. I, I have a lady in my department who crosses her fingers. So <laughs> my second year as a teacher, I decided I was going to do it. I was going to I was going to role play D&D with my huge classes. I was going to train a dungeon master and I was going to cre- I created Google slide adventures so that the, the dungeon master could take them through curriculum. And I did see some success in that. And here here was the issue I ran into. They had great fun. They were engaged and they were pretty much making up the game as they went along. Time ends up being the enemy for teachers nine times out of ten. Mm-hmm. It's time. Uh-huh. So to train a kid to be a dungeon master, to read the script, to take the kids through the adventure, you've got you've you've got hundreds of state standards to go through. You've got tests to prepare for. Like ultimately, just the equity in time that it takes to teach them the game isn't equitable on first sight. Now, what I'll say about that is if everybody gave time to teachers to actually do that, they wouldn't have to worry about all the test prep that comes later because the kids would be brilliant. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate truth. You know, you've got benchmarks, you've got middle of the year exams, you've got papers to write and all that that implies. And so the idea of teaching these kids how to play a game, which would take about nine weeks, honestly, you're talking about the first quarter of the year to properly train four GMs in every class to, you know, how to do this. It's not effective. Uh, at this time, it's not effective. If you put it on a one-to-one device where a child is going through a Skyrim-style adventure with curriculum being delivered into their face, would be highly effective, and it's probably the way that education is going to have to go. So what I decided to do is, is start an after-school club, and uh, what I noticed in the club kids was kids who didn't talk, who were maybe sped and lep, um, language learners and special education, reading deficiency, whatever it might have been, all of a sudden, the teachers were coming to me a few weeks after I'd started the club, and they said, so-and-so is in your club, aren't they? And I would say, yeah. And they said, man, she is a different girl. She she helps peers. She raises her hand in class to ask answer and ask questions. So my teachers in the building started to notice the differences in these, like, 10 kids, I think it was at the time. And I, I was I was feeling pretty proud about that. And then I noticed the, the students that I had that were in that club, their score started to increase. You know, and we're talking about a percent or two. But in our business, a percent or two is is a lot. Um, so then I decided to take them second semester, my club kids, and put them into reading intervention class, which is a, a, a class designed to help children with their deficiencies. So I took the D&D club kids and plopped them into an intervention period, and I watched all the kids, all the kids' scores go up. So... There was something there ultimately, and I, I created a creative writing role-playing game that I call Radioactive, and uh, the kids were basically role-playing and writing at the same time, and I saw some of the greatest success that a teacher can see and was so proud of what they were doing, and these children actually helped build a whole world. You know, Not only did they make one character, they generated dozens of characters, factions, locations. You know, It was very, very cool, and then I realized fully in my second year there, what what role playing could truly do for a classroom and how many different ways teachers could use it. I think also, Kate, I want to go back to one of the great points that you illustrated. And I feel like you and I both get asked about this frequently, whether we're in the forum chatting right um, on a panel. But how do we actually tie this to benchmarks, SGOs, um, you know, any of our actual objectives? And I think uh, in part, that's why we have really, especially for 2019, have really tried to truly collaborate on teaching with D&D and really pull it together because this can happen in so many different ways in the classroom, but decisively, it's going to be the teacher having intimate knowledge about their actual standards that's going to kind of make or break this. I don't think it's really one of those things where you can phone it in and say, the game will make the classroom better. Because ultimately, the backbone still is formed through your lessons and through what you need to be teaching. And I think that's one of those things, like, we can't treat this as a silver bullet, but it's certainly, 
you know, it's magical to the students. And I think when teachers start to realize, like, they can almost, and the way I describe it is, like, you can wrap your classroom in D&D as if it's, like, a, a gift to your students. That was a really kind of corny analogy, but it, it's, it's, I almost see it like that. Like, you must have a good idea of where you want to go before you can implement something that, you know, it seems so far into left field, but it's honestly just kind of, like Kate is saying, you're taking that gaming theory truly to heart and you're implementing it and your lessons in a slightly different way than, you know, what we consider the norm. Yeah, absolutely. You two have kind of touched on it before, but I wanted to ask, you know, what are the qualities of D&D that first made you realize that it could be good for teaching literature and what have you found has has been the beneficial aspects of it? I'm going to pop in real quick, Sarah, and then you take it. Yeah. Yeah, Kate, you definitely start. Um, character creation covers about 15 standards of the standards in Texas. <laughs> 15. Wow. I probably have like, I don't know, 85 to 100 standards. 15 of the most important research standards are, are gleaned by just character creation. Okay, so that's just the very tip. I mean, that's the very beginning and you talk about kids who are reluctant readers. All of my students are reluctant readers, okay? When you put a player's handbook in front of them, just like when I was 10 years old, I think it's the artwork that pulls you in first. But then these children are reading graphs and charts. You know, all the stuff for leveling up is all on a chart. And I mean, it's it, – it's they, and they flip in the pages. And you can kind of see in their little faces, they're like, I feel kind of dirty looking through this book. But I'm going to keep turning the page because somehow I'm kind of interested so I wanted to start with that just character creation is 15 standards in English. Go ahead, Sarah. For me, I love that from the research aspect and, and having those kind of base standards. Um, like I'd mentioned before, retention, close reading, critical thinking skills, character motivation. And it really opened the doors for a lot of interspersion of like, uh, you know, I can still ask the same classroom questions to check in and make sure my students understand what's going on. But... Um, like I had easily hid them in monsters. Like sometimes monsters would speak up and say like, before I can let you go down this path, you know, answer this question. And, you know, the, <laughs> the kids would huff and puff about it, but they love the adventure so much that, you know, they get excited to answer it so they can continue, um, you know, still being in that like immersive world. So for me, it was very much blending like things I already know that I would ask in a very standard lecture, but now, you know, maybe one of them is picking up a slip of paper. Maybe one of them is running across, like I made something that was a little non-standard in D&D, like these encounter tiles, I just called them that, where, you know, they knew if they stepped on it, they were getting a, like, standard English class kind of question, but, you know, the rewards were, um, you know, gold, silver, copper, or cool weapons, or things like that, and like Kate had said, even running a classroom economy where they can start to trade in this gold to merchants, to townspeople, to me, you know, we see a lot of teachers run classroom economies where you pay, of course, for uh, a homework pass or things like that, you know, goaded this along even further where, um, and I guess, you know, Cade would agree with this, like, it's not even like you're running an adventure at this point, you're now running an entire world and you have all these NPCs to take care of. You have these towns, you have students interacting on so many different levels with so many different, you know, people, and all these people are you. <laughs> so it's like, it's all these different facets of what you already know and what you already want to teach them just spread out and I, I want to say almost like miraged, like there's just like a, a thin veil in front of them, but that's what makes it fun. Yeah, you're totally tricking them into learning is what it is. I mean, that's, that's yeah, it, 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 yeah. I got a good, I got a good caveat for that. So as, as department chair, I get the opportunity now. I don't have an intervention period of my own anymore. What I do is I pull students who are at need of intervention for special projects. Well, guess what that special project was? <laughs> so I pulled, uh, 10 kids, uh, who are highly identified, which means they've got paperwork. If that makes sense to you, I know it makes sense to Sarah. So I've got, an autistic child who's both special education and a uh, language learner this year and autistic. So he's got three labels. I've got a child with a reading deficiency who's also got a special education uh, mark. I've got a serious LEP student, a language learner from Honduras whose family has been 
devastated by what's going on there. I've got a child who, uh, another sped child who has another reading deficiency. So these are the kids that I picked um, to do this. And I pull them every other day to play 45 minutes of Dungeons and Dragons. And most of them, I want to say probably seven of the 10 wouldn't say a word to anybody in the building all day long. And after a couple of weeks of making characters and, you know, getting them started with, you know, the idea of role playing is like, hey, what do you say to this person? And they had to get used to actually saying it. So when you're talking about language proficiency from a language learner, somebody who speaks Spanish in my case, when you're talking about I have to read this and synthesize the information in my brain and come up with an idea to speak to you, and then I have to listen to what you tell me back to be able to speak again in a character that's in an imaginary world in my head, the the process that's going on in the human brain, I would have taken for granted as a 10-year-old boy playing Dungeons & Dragons. As a teacher, seeing what it's doing for these kids... Oh, man. In, in this intervention period that I have this year, I have watched these children grow socioemotionally, mostly. You know, the socioemotional <laughs> growth is happening right before your eyes, where they all of a sudden they feel like they belong. All of a sudden they feel like they're not alone. All of a sudden they feel like their ideas matter. All of a sudden their character helps validate this child's existence in the world. Uh, for instance, beautiful kid, just wonderful, wonderful boy from Honduras. He plays a barbarian. His barbarian can kill anything. It brings this kid great joy to see the power that his character brings him through his imagination, through the camaraderie of the group. And I just think how unfortunate it is that it's only really effective at 10 kids. That's about where you really have to draw the line or you nobody get, you know, you don't get to take enough turns. And how the modern classroom of public education is going to make that so difficult to just let the kids play D&D. Because what I'm seeing is I'm just running a campaign with these kids. I do things like I gave them the first 12 pages of my fantasy novel and said, yeah, the puzzle coming up two dungeon rooms from now is going to, you're going to need this or you'll die. And that was imprinted, of course, on the dungeon walls in previous rooms that they had to disseminate. And so all of these students ended up having this paper folded up in their back pocket, had highlights and annotations all over it. Now, I got to tell you, my students are not the kind of kids that walk around with homework in their back pocket. (laughs) So all of a sudden we came to play D&D and I was like, okay, guys, it's the dungeon room I've been warning you about. They all pulled this out of their back pocket. I see it's all marked up and everything. And they had to solve this puzzle based upon the knowledge that was in the reading that they had to do. In terms of teachers doing classroom strategies for how to use role playing in their classroom, that's the easiest solution. Like they have to read a text, just like Sarah was saying, you got to read a text in order to answer the puzzle puzzle or you're dead. (laughs) You know, your characters will die. And they are aware of how much work it takes to make a character. And they, although they enjoyed it, they don't really want to do it again. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even just to illustrate to that point, I had one class. And again, I'll just use Beowulf as my reference. I know about half of them didn't read the text. And Grendel's mother, like, wiped out half the class. It was awesome. <laughs> I was laughing the entire time. I mean, I was having a good time. But they weren't. But they kept wanting to play. Like, it was... This idea that, like, they knew that they kind of got caught out, but they also let the groups down. You know, they were trying to achieve this mission, and, you know, ultimately they couldn't because of, due, just due to a general lack of knowledge. And you can kind of see, and this is where we see all that collaboration and teamwork really start to be instilled because it wasn't, it's different letting me down. They don't care if the teachers let down. They, it's not something that's really a problem for a lot of students, but, when they rely on one another in a game like that and in a scenario where they have special skills that they can employ at different moments, that's when it becomes really different. There's a, a gravity then suddenly to these, these classroom choices. What you made me think of is people enter a game with the expectation that there is a path for them forward. There is a way for them to win or advance. And school does not feel like that much of the time. You know, even if it's not a test, just homework, you might not feel like the homework was fair because of one reason or another. But if you put it into the context of a game, you feel like games are designed for people to win, for people to advance. So it kind of changes your your expectations about what's going to happen. And you have a feeling that if you try harder, if you try something new, if you do things a different way, that you can move forward. And I think it, that that's an amazing addition to education uh, because 
Oftentimes it's pass fail. It's, well, you got this bad grade and it's going to stick with you for the next six months or the next year. And it feels very, very unforgiving. Whereas games are the opposite. They want you to succeed. Yeah. And, and Kate, I think says this maybe two to five times every phone call that we have, but <laughs> this idea that like he always says, like we're building heroes, right? Kate. I mean, like that's, that's your the title mind. of the book. Your, I, I think everything that Cade really truly believes in for this is really encapsulated in, in that concept of building heroes. My children, uh, after D&D Club, I have them do a reflection at the end of every year. And one of the reflections from a kid that I have in the paper when I went to Austria was something to the effect of, it helps you prepare for the real world because you were able to make the decision before you actually made the decision. So like, should I steal this loaf of bread because my team is hungry? Well, let me look, weigh the options. And so, you know, in a role-playing world where the stakes are maybe some hit points or some jail time or maybe the, the mayor will hang you or who even knows, at least it's happening to an imaginary character. Okay, so say you're playing the sneaky halfling thief who just happens to get in trouble all the time and you get caught stealing something. Well, that child in some ways gets to experience what it's like to have get caught, having get caught stole, stealing something. Excuse me. That's a difficult sentence. <laughs> um, so they, they, they get that experience of, oh, you know, I failed, but I personally didn't have to go through it. I just got to see it by extension. And I've noticed that is a really powerful psychological tool for, for kids. Very. So as a parent, let's say, if you're a parent and you want to give your kids life lessons and do Aesop's Fables, you can actually teach them great life lessons using a role-playing game because you can present them with the things that will happen without it actually having to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And longtime listeners will know that most of the context that I've talked about Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games is I've talked to a lot of therapists and counselors who use Dungeons & Dragons to, to build up people's self-esteem, to, like you said, with social skills, and that aspect of games being they're real, but they're not real. They're definitely real and they're definitely not real at the same time because you get into that mental state of being invested, invested in what happens to your character and what happens to the story. But the consequences are in that world and they're not in the real world. So they, like you said, they let you play things out, let you see how things happen, how things unfold and think about, you know, how you feel about them, how you react to them, what what you would do in that situation and what regrets you might have. Yeah, the, it's truly an amazing aspect of games. It gives us a chance to experiment. Like, mm -hmm. experiment. you know, as a, as a, I teach ninth grade kids in the hood. So, like, experimentation is part of their life. And if they get a chance to experiment with, with low stakes, they will have a better opportunity when the stakes are very high. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they, they get it. You can, and as a teacher then, as a teacher or a dungeon master, giving them that adventure, you give them the same kinds of little clues that they will give in their life and say, hey, you get a funny feeling. The hairs on the back of your neck stand up. What do you do? Oh, I hide in the shadow. You know, like, you know, so they, they get a chance to kind of emulate the world in, in in low stakes. And I've had lots of kids comment on that. Um, the reading involved, you know, the, we're talking about an all time low literacy deficit in America, and that's going to continue to get worse. So something has to happen. And Dungeons and Dragons, as as a catalyst, I've seen has done very, very well uh, just at getting them to turn the pages and read informational text and then follow the trail because they're looking at the same kinds of things they see on a test. You're looking for bolded heading. You're looking for underlined words. You're looking for mm -hmm. vocabulary. Where do I find it? Look in the index, Timmy, you know, whatever it might be. Um, look at the chart, look at the graph, look at the picture, look at the, look at, you know, the postscript, look at the footnote. They, they learn to do all those things in just the player's handbook, for example. Mm -hmm. One question I wanted to ask was, this is a, an experiment, you know, you've done these experiments in your classrooms. Were there any big speed bumps in your first implementations that, that you've learned and adapted from? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, it's very difficult to do it in a large classroom. It's very <laughs> difficult. It's very, very difficult. Now, I did succeed in it in an intervention period for the last three years where I was running Radioactive, which was basically a boiled down role playing system that I designed, co-designed with uh, the Kennedy Center 
ran this, made this thing where you could turn literature into a game and blah, blah, blah. So we, we created some models and created some character sheets. And once we had created a model character sheet, I was like, oh, I kind of like that character sheet. And it's, it's just a really, well, and I was playing a lot of Fallout at the time. Uh, and I thought, well, that's a, cool, <laughs> that's a really cool world. I think that the kids, because one of the problems that the kids had in my district is they couldn't understand a fantasy world. I mean, these these children come in with very limited background knowledge. Okay, parents who probably who many you know fifty percent of their parents never read a book to these kids when they were growing up. So you're looking at kids who have never seen Lord of the Rings, who have no idea what Dungeons and Dragons are. And I would I, I would have them use a program called Hero Machine to make a character portrait. And here their fantasy paladin has got uh you know a hat on backwards and saggy pants. You know, it's like, dude. Wizards, magic, dragons, castles, you know, they just, they just, there's no approach for them. And so I uh, built this world called Radioactive, which I felt was going to be more reachable for them. And it was. So I had game masters trained. And no, so in an, in an intervention period, it doesn't matter what you really do as long as it works. And so it's a really great opportunity to experiment. So I experimented for three years. These kids helped me build the whole world. Okay, the whole world. And then they went on adventures together using the system that I designed. And then they reflected upon it using writing as a team on a shared document through Google, which has been beautiful, where all the kids can get on the same document and start writing. Well, then I realized, well, a document isn't really very game like, is it? So I decided decided to start using slides. And slides allows the kids to put in an image with the text. And all of a sudden, their adventures became a storybook that they all really bought into. So we'd spend a couple of days playing and a couple of days writing and a couple of days playing and a couple of days writing. And, oh, here's a test. Oh, wow, you guys did really good on your test. Let's play some more. Let's write some more. Here's another test. Oh, you did really good. And so it was successful, but I had to really boil it down. Hmm. So what I would say to teachers is the rules are really very arbitrary. Whatever system you use doesn't really matter. I'm going to go back to the idea that it's the game philosophy in your heart and in your mind that will make the most difference. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The way that I run Dungeons and Dragons in Cadiz, that's an excellent point. It is so distilled and basic that it's it's almost as if we're not even using D&D at this point. But there are some very just basic functional mechanics that I will use, but to his point, right, time is one of your greatest enemies and also classroom size. I had a very varied classroom um, classroom setup for my, um, you know, last year there. I had one class of 28 students and I had one class of nine students and then I had everything in between. Um, so how, how do I manage that? Really, you know, is one class going to now be so sped up in the adventure that the others are falling behind? What do I do with, like Kate said, a classroom of 30 students, practically? How do you manage that? And, you know, these are all great questions that we've thought about for some time, and it's really coming down to you have to be very knowledgeable about what you can actually put your students through and what you can put yourself through as a teacher. That's why a big thing that, you know, we're pushing towards is making very modular adventures for teachers, Um, you know, kind of having this. I had the luxury of 86-minute block schedules. You know, some teachers do not have that luxury. They have that 40-minute, let's get started and let's go. So they really have to be careful and choose wisely, like, which part of the adventure they want to use to best illustrate what they're trying to teach. And I think that's where a lot of those nuances come in and how they themselves are adapting the game. So I, <laughs> I know it sounds like it's like, oh, well, you can pretty much do anything. It's not quite anything, but... It is driven so much by that philosophy like Kate is speaking to. Uh, a friend of mine who teaches world geography and social studies, uh, we developed a tool over Christmas break on a Thursday that is a house building slash country building activity. And he's a super geography nerd, um, super duper duper good at building game stuff. And we're just about to put, we're just about ready to put it on the website. And it, it, it's uh, a cross curricular tool that shows all the things you would need for a functional society and you have to buy out of a point system to decide what your household is going to be like and how that household interacts with other households that might be created in a classroom. So all of a sudden you have a Game of Thrones kind of dynamic that's happening among 
watch groups in a classroom as like, oh, we got all the gold. Yeah, but we got all the soldiers. Hey, I'll trade you some of this gold for some of those soldiers. So <laughs> then the kids will actually make D&D characters as members of households having stake in those households as a character. And so you're starting to see an overlay. What's the what's the religion of this household? What's the culture of this household? What's the who are the enemies? Who are the allies? And this is all based out of world geography standards. And yet all the while they're having to read and make decisions. So it boils into English. Very recently, I've started del- uh, delving into Starfinder, which is a super cool game, but smarter than Dungeons and Dragons. So even <laughs> even harder for my students to reach. And I'm doing it anyway. So um, Mr. West and I is the name of the guy. Uh, we're redesigning the household builder into a planet builder, which then go overlaps into science a great deal. Hmm. So now you're starting to see uh, a gamification that ends up overlapping into three subjects. And then you start having the kids draw a picture of their starship. Well, then there's art. So you have them start to do analytics on the, you know, the, the, the numerics behind how often you're going to hit or not. And there you have algebra. Hmm. Um, some of the die roll stuff that I've been reading out of Starfinder straight out of an algebra problem on their on their assessment for the state you know it's it's really 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 cool but just tools can be built with gaming in mind the kids will tie on to it if they see that you are trying to work as a teacher to make their learning experience fun and that cannot be underwritten whatever game you want to use i have teachers that use apples to apples in intervention period or in tutorials and just the fact that the kids get to play a game, well, apples to apples is played with words, right? So anything that you can do with with games that are especially especially kinesthetic. My students in intervention, when they roll the dice to see if they hit the monster or not, or whether they made their check or not, the roll is this this moment that connects them to this universe. And every child is is on the edge waiting for that die to stop rolling, and then they go, oh, you know, and it's. <laughs> It's super duper duper neat to see that experience that I got as a 10 year old boy that these children never would have gotten had they not come through my classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that really, yeah, I had a big D20, like an oversized one. And I sometimes felt like <laughs> the tension was so real when I would roll it. It, I just, it was so interesting. I mean, it was just so wonderful to see how they reacted. I agree with that entirely, Kate. Well, well, and dice is recursive math. When you roll a D20, you're looking at variable numbers on your character sheet, and those variables change when you level up. They change based upon what monster you fight. They change based upon the lock that you're picking or the mountain mm-hmm. that you're climbing or whatever. So you're talking about a mini algebraic equation, and I'm very bad at math, and I, I worry to think what would have happened to me had Dungeons & Dragons not been a part of my life since <laughs> I was 10. Because of the recursive math that's there. I've always been very, very creative, and I could write you a novel right now. But the recursive math that D&D forces you to do in order to play the game made me much better at math than I would have been had I never met the game. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't. I, I don't even know. Like, the horror that I think. <laughs> I'm sure you're very good at math as a rocket scientist. And all. <laughs> yeah, just don't ask me to do it on air. Um, <laughs> yeah, one time, <laughs> one time I did a kilometers to miles conversion in my head on air and it didn't work so i don't do that anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know that's that's amazing too that kind of what you were talking about before that to play a role-playing game even just a regular you know even just one at your house it involves so many different skills and so many different ways of thinking and then these things like the the math of it you know, understanding things about, like you were talking about, from all areas of science, of geography, of culture, all of that can play in. And it's really incredible. And, you know, it kind of leads you to the conclusion that maybe there's so much more that can be done with this and possibly even cover basically the entirety of or the variety of school curriculums of different subjects and combine them. Let me explain it to you this way. Yeah. This is, this is going to be super easy. The <laughs> children that I have that play Fallout or Skyrim versus the kids that I have that play NB2K or Madden are very, very different students academically. <laughs> very, very. Now, if the kids that play Madden, which I love, I love football. I was a football player. I was an all-star middle linebacker, which is hard to believe when I look at myself today. Um, if I could get my kids that play Madden to play Skyrim, we'd have higher test scores overnight, overnight. (laughs) 
overnight. You force them to play it. Like, oh, I don't really like this game. I don't care, Timmy. You're going to play this game until you're smart. I'm level 30. I'm smart now. Yeah, you are. Because you know how to make iron daggers. You know how to upgrade them. You know which shopkeeper to talk to. You know which world to go to in order to trade this or buy that. I mean, you're talking about immersive learning at its finest. I I use Skyrim because that game has survived, you know, a long time and has just gotten cooler every time they've touched it. And the children that I have that play that game are very intrinsically bright and do like that immersive world. And I do know that if I took a kid who plays Madden and I showed them, hey, dude, you can learn everything you want to learn by playing this game. They would play that game and they would pass their tests and everybody would be happy. <laughs> That's a hard sell <laughs> going up. Yeah, I, I know that a lot of people do see video games that way, that games have helped them to think strategically or... I know people who have have learned English by playing video games yep. that, you know, mm-hmm. the draw of games, it, like you said before, just tricking you into learning. It's it's just so absorbing that you don't even realize how much learning you're doing, the types of skills that you're learning that, you know, an educator knows is valuable or, you know, there's there's a larger context to to learning these skills and how they can be helpful in the future. Well, a teacher's opportunity in a classroom is limited by what your students are going to be willing to do, okay? So what teachers in other districts that aren't mine, what they don't see are whole classes of kids saying, no, I'm not going to do that. What are you going to do, Chaz, when 30 kids look up at you and shake their head and say, I'm not doing that? What are you going to do? You're going to write them all up? <laughs> they know they're getting zeros. Guys, I'm going to give you zeros. You know, like they're they're not, they don't, you know, if they don't care about the, the product of the grade, what do you do? Then the only thing uh-huh. you can do is get them interested in the product that they can create. So you create the most creative things that you can think of that the kids will build along the way and you get them to be proud of what they build instead of the grade that's going in the grade book. And that is very, very effective. You get them to build something they can be proud of. Now that might be a game or it might be a, a project like I do a project called Lyrical Analysis, which has the kids look at their music, they analyze two songs, they find the theme. And they put it all in slides where they can put in images that relate to the song. Uh, they have to come up with a, uh, an artist's purpose based on the themes of the two songs. And then they have to make an inference whether that music will be listened to by their grandchildren or whether it will fade away. And they, they love these presentations that they're building. They, they dig deep into text. And although it may not seem like it, that does come from gaming. Because when I was a kid growing up and playing Dungeons and Dragons, I loved music just as much as these kids. And so although it may not seem like direct gamification, what you are doing is you're tapping into the same vein of the brain. So that same thing, like I am a person who wants to show the world what I am and who I am. And my music is a big part of me, just like games are a big part of us. And so those sorts of products right now, my kids are doing short plays and I'm watching how the character creation thing I do at the very beginning of the year is now being very beneficial to them as they're writing these little bad five-minute plays. So the learning all ends up being connected together, and people shouldn't get too tied down on what they think a game is or isn't. What a game isn't is open your books to page 88 and do the questions at the end of the chapter. That's what a game isn't. Pretty much anything else that you can design that's you know got a little more thought in it may be a little closer to what a game actually is. So. Earlier, you talked about the origin story of how you two connected and started comparing notes. So can you talk about what your organization Teaching with D&D is and how you help other educators? Yeah. Um, so the way that we've decided to go about this is I feel like recently we've decided to put together what I would call a community hub. So I think what Kate and I ran into over um, the past few years is that we have so many people reaching out to us from all across the globe. Um, sometimes, and I, Kate, I think you'd agree, like our inboxes are frightening. Um, it, there just isn't enough time to even answer, to talk. And, and it's like you see all these great stories out there and people wanting to connect. And I think that's really what we're striving to do is to connect teachers who are doing vastly different things with D&D, or even in the same, we can just call it role-playing games. They're all doing all sorts of different variations of these things, and they're all seeking each other, and I think that's the most important part. You know, we'll get things from middle school teachers who are saying, oh, have you seen it done this way anywhere else? And I'll dimly think, oh, well, I, I think I heard someone say something like that, you know, six months ago in an email. So I think what we're really striving towards right now 
is creating content for teachers that guides them. So like we had talked about, classroom management is a big problem. Modules, picking, picking out how to break up adventures is a, a larger issue. When do you do certain things? How do I tie my curriculum? So, of course, some of the most basic things that you encounter as a teacher, you want those, you want those answers. So we're striving to build those out to serve the community a bit better in that vein. I know that I'm trying to build right now a network of educators who want to contribute their thoughts to the site. I think that's going to be very valuable as people are going to start writing in. Um, I just actually got my first recent article submission that will be going up probably next week. But a teacher out in Canada, how he uses it in his high school. So I think really having a lot of different voices come together and show what they do is going to be very powerful as we move through this. Kate, and you have some great thoughts moving forward for what you were saying with Radioactive and your um, World Geography Builder. Uh, what other kind of things are you really excited for? I Chasten came to mind. I've got a, a neighbor at the at the high school next door who uh, is an AEA teacher, and AEA teachers teach the first year uh, immigrants. So these children speak almost no English at all, and he's running them through uh, the mines of Fandelver. And he he really LARPs a lot in order to help them with the language acquisition. He has all these cool little tools where one day he showed me a video where the kids are tracking goblin prints down the hallway in tutorials to find to find this goblin. So he's actually using, um, you know, the physical, the, the, the live action role playing along with dice. And so these children are walking around the building with D20s in their hands. And when they find them, then they have to roll a diplomacy check. So they got a character sheet in one hand and a die in the other. That That's one of the coolest things that I've seen in, in a long time. And I think that Chasen is going to be great for the website because he's doing mm-hmm. these constantly, constantly. He's such a neat guy. <laughs> what else? Moving forward in the future. That's what we're talking about. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm gonna tr- I'm trying to formulate a database that will utilize the core mechanic that Dungeons and Dragons released at the end of 3.5 on their conversion to 4.0, um, where everything became public domain. And if that database can be created, then learning systems can be added to that uh, at infinitum, really. Hmm. So once you have the database created, and as a as a rocket scientist, you, this will be familiar to you. <laughs> Once that database is created, you can overlay whatever genre you could possibly imagine and push the button and it'll go. So that's something to me that's important, um, using the radioactive system and refurbishing it to utilize that database so that I can start uh, writing adventures that are specifically uh, standard driven. And that's what really needs to happen. So imagine you're a child and you're in a dungeon and you have to unlock a lock. And on the outside of the lock is an algebraic equation. And on the inside of the lock are some numbers. And you got to line up the number with the algebraic equation before that door opens. And if that's your whole learning experience, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn it really fast. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I really, I'm striving towards building something that's one-to-one because what I see in my school, the most effective tools, unfortunately, are through a screen. Children, and it's unfortunate, like this is, this is catch-22 because kids are getting worse and worse at interpersonal communication. And I'm seeing that year after year. So when I role play tabletop with the kids, I see that interpersonal communication coming out. But relationships in a classroom are becoming harder and harder to form. It takes longer and longer for them to come out of their screen shell. So in the forward movement of public education, a tool is going to have to be designed, unfortunately, where a child sits in front of a screen, goes on an adventure, pushes the button, gets an output, takes an exam, writes a, writes a paper, and all that exists in this world for this one child. Now, it's possible that, you know, a multiple online role-playing system could be fabricated out of that, but you have to end up holding each child accountable for the learning. Okay, that's one of the challenges, is that, yeah, you're great, you got a role-playing party, and the kids are, do, what do you do about the kid that's trying to sneak, you know, Instagram on their phone every 10 seconds while their group is going through the dungeon? So the data stream that comes out is the important part for administration and superintendents and so forth. So in order for that stream to occur, a product has to be built where an output is given for every input that is shown to the students. I hope that makes sense. It's kind mm-hmm. of a complex mm-hmm. idea. So Sarah and I, like, it's cool because we, we are very different people, but we see the same thing. And so we kind of work on opposite ends of the same rainbow. And I feel that the pot of gold is actually in the middle. Um, 
we have connected a lot of teachers. I, I one guy keeps coming to mind is this this dude in Brazil who is teaching his kids English, and he says, you know, all standard based driven stuff is arbitrary because these kids are learning English for the first time. And he said, I'm a lifelong role player, and it occurred to me, hey, D and D is how I learned English. And so he's like, how do I get books? And we're like, oh man, you know, like. Bro, you gotta buy them. You know, you gotta just, you just gotta just buy them. Um, you know, share. You know, come, come out, do a, do a, do a fundraiser, cook some brownies. You know, I don't know what to tell you. So it's, it's interesting to see, like, literally how many different ways people are using it. And if you have low English learners, you know, it can be as simple as, hey, we're just gonna play D and D, and that will help them learn English. And then you have like what Sarah's doing, modifying Beowulf, teaching them British literature. <laughs> And everything in between. So what Sarah and I are really trying to do is 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 way too much work for two people. Um, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've done decent at communicating with people to help as much as possible. And I see that community coming together more and more every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to remind one guy one day where I said, uh, dude, we're two full time teachers, you know, running this, you know, like on our on our very limited free time. And he was like, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, like, I apologize for, for being, <laughs> being hot. And I was like, hey, you know, I, as a guy who's hot most of the time, I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> but uh, the, the future of what this looks like um, is the future, honestly, as I see it, that if public education does not start to indoctrinate some of these philosophies, you can say goodbye to it. Uh, if you've read Ready Player One, I think that's the most likely dystopian future that's maybe ever, <laughs> that's maybe ever been written. Mm. All right. Well, this has been a really amazing conversation. So how can listeners find out more about you? I mean, you say you're swamped, but all I can offer to you is hopefully get you more swamped with people who are interested or people who want to learn. Where can people find you online? Of course, anybody can head to uh, teachingwithdnd.com. It's D-N-D, not the ampersand. And they can check out the site, uh, see where we're headed, kind of like our whole mission statement and values. and. you know, if anyone's interested, I guess my little call to action here is if you have something you want to say about Dungeons and Dragons and education or role-playing games and education and you want to post and help build the community and help, you know, spread ideas via monsters, via modules, via even just like thought leadership, I am so ready to hear what you want to do and we'll make it happen. So I think it's really just, again, for me, growing the community, seeing where it can go and really just helping out teachers. I think Right now, Kate and I are pushing to go beyond uh, all the theory craft, right? We know that this works. We know it in our hearts. And right now, teachers need actionable items. They need things in their hands that they can say, okay, I can do this. I have a framework. Let's think about it, and I can implement it. So that's really where we're, we're striving to head right now. We have some very active members on our forum that have begun to help us with the workload. And so if, if folks have pressing questions, they can go to the forum, they can post the question. And there are a couple of guys there that are, are pretty diligent about answering questions. Mm-hmm. And I think, I thank God for them because it yeah. just, it, it did, it quickly grew. It's going to continue to quickly grow. Sarah and I are going to, uh, do more videos. Um, one of the problems that I have is while I'm doing it, I don't really want to film it because I'm doing it, you know, so I'm helping uh-huh. these kids grow and learn. And it's like, what am I going to do to set up a camera and have them pander to the camera? And, you know, it just it's the one extra thing where I believe in the philosophy so much that I almost don't want to taint it. Hmm. And there are other people who are so much better at tainting it with with, with <laughs> camera. Um, I get very much immersed in into the child's life and I want to help them. But, um, yeah, the, the website and the forum are, are great. Sarah and I will eventually get to you a good story maybe to close with as I had this senior in high school who's doing his graduation project on um, education and learning. What's his name? Avis, I think is his name from Chicago. And he, he emails me one day, the cutest thing, the cutest little guy. He emails me and he says, Hey, I'd really like to do an interview with you guys. I can't believe what you're doing. It's so great. I lead the D and D club uh, for my school. And so I do, I do this interview with this little guy thinking, you know, hopefully 10 years from now, you know, it'll be one of my, doing this interview. And it just warmed my heart that this kid understood what I understood 
you know, and he's 18 and he's like, yeah, I've seen what this club does for kids and I've seen what it does for their learning and I've seen what it can do for their future. And I, I want to know all about what you know all about. And for me, that was the ultimate validation was Avis wanting to do this as his graduation thesis project. <laughs> I was like, I, I can I can die now. It's good. Like little brother at 18 years old understands it all and he'll take the torch if I happen to drop it. And so the reason I'm closing with that is because. That is the future. That is truly the future. We'll all get old. We'll all die. Avis is 18. He's living the dream. He understands what it can do. Sarah and I will leave a product that's continuing to build that other people can utilize. And I think as she and I continue to work and meet and do the serious play conference this this summer, all kinds of good is going to come out of of that in July. And I think it's going to blow the community up in a really major way. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show and talking to me about all the work that you do and all the crazy experiments that you've tried and <laughs> all the ways you've been trying to build heroes. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank yes, you. sir. Thanks, Chaz, very much. <laughs> I can't thank Sarah and Kate enough for coming on Plus of Intelligence to share their story and their methods. You know, I don't even play Dungeons and Dragons, but It keeps coming up because there are so many amazing things happening as role-playing games continue to grow and demonstrate how they are a unique environment for people to learn and to grow. And of course, it's all based on the power of games to impact people. I really encourage anyone out there who has the capability to take a moment and check out the Teaching with D&D forum and see how you can contribute. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. The subject of next week's episode was actually mentioned briefly in this one. We are going to be talking about a system for turning any type of classroom into a video game adventure. Next episode, we are talking about Classcraft. As always, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes and join the community Discord channel. You can reach the Discord channel at Discord. Dot gg slash plus seven. That's discord.gg slash plus numeral seven. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.